When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Real Vision, the Defiance Weekly Tete-a-Tete on the finer points of decentralized tomfoolery. And dancing a Twitter tango on the tortured titterings of under-researched co-combatants, it's a man who really should have been a villain in Game of Thrones. You missed your calling, sir, Raoul Powell. And bringing balance to the force the only way she knows how with 2020 vision and a hot Web3 media property is the Defiance Chief of Chiefness, the chiefest Camilla Russo. And then there's me, middle-aged, tired, and running out of ways to craft an introduction. I am Robin Schmidt. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful week of blood. Raoul, how are you seeing this from your side of the pond? I'm seeing that as you're just the king of the intro. That's it. I'm in yes. awe of you. <laughs> we need to take a moment to appreciate the turn, turn it into an NFT. We'll make a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah, it's been, um, it's been quite the week, right? But I think most of us have been around for a while. It's kind of just all part of the game. And it's just been interesting being on Twitter, watching the monkeys throwing poo at each other as soon as things fall apart. Everybody's freaking out, accusing each other of all sorts of things. It's it's kind of hilarious. But, you know, within the general context of, of crypto and the logarithmic trends that I look at, it's kind of nothing really happening. We're just in a big sideways range right now. And I think, you know, I looked at this in detail. And for me, it's all been driven by the lack of inflows into the overall network. We just haven't seen network growth for a while. And whether that's a function of consumer spending patterns. So, you know, if you raise a lot of prices on people and don't raise their wages enough, then the marginal investor disappears. And I think we've seen that. We've seen that in, in stuff like the uh, um, the meme stocks as well. So I think that's kept people away and that's kept the market a little more volatile. But from the top-down perspective, all I get is phone calls and conference calls with all of the world's biggest investors this week alone, I've spoken to two of the largest private equity firms in the world who are like, how do we do this? How do we get involved? And that's, you know, I'm speaking to pension funds, asset allocators, everybody. So I don't think anything's changed at all. It's just a period of stagnancy. When you, when you say they're, they're looking to get involved, on what grounds are they looking to get involved? Is it this represents a better place for us to part money? Or is it we've read this thing, we're interested in it, we don't know how. Like, I'm curious how that conversation goes. So it's a combination of levels. So firstly, most people have done some VC. Almost everybody has. And we've seen that in the flows. Because that's easy to get past your investment committee because there's no mark to market. You're not having something on your balance sheet that nobody has had to deal with. So we saw that. And people are now like, OK, well, where do we go from here? So one of the things I've done is I've set up a, um, a fund of funds, investing in crypto hedge funds. There's a lot of interest in that space. You know, how do we get exposure? That's why how people want to get exposure to DeFi as well, because it's an easier route to get a bunch of different hedge funds who run DeFi strategies um, to have a kind of diversified portfolio because the people don't yet understand the risks. And I think that's right. So they're looking at the secondary markets now. And, you know, realistically, if you look at um, the VC space, I mean, there's been tens of billions of dollars gone into VC. 
While if you look at the secondary markets, i.e. the hedge fund market, there's been about a, um, a billion dollars of primary capital only. And the whole space is about six billion. And that's mainly driven by performance. So there's a lot of institutional interest in that. Um, the banks and everybody else are looking at, okay, how do we service this market? How do we set up trading desks? What do we need to provide? The kind of the mega finance firms are thinking, okay, how do we further get into this market beyond just BC? Um, you know, people are looking at, I mean, I'm seeing people looking at DeFi separately to figure out how can we get involved in the lending markets? Because these guys are super experienced. We've seen the launch of things like the new Brevin Howard, which is the mega hedge fund run by Alan Howard. They've just launched um, uh, Brevin Howard Digital. Um, and that's a whole kind of soup to nuts organization with, you know, they've retooled a bunch of credit traders and brought them into DeFi because they understand the kind of risk cycles and stuff. They brought um, a whole bunch of people into the space. So I just see that that institutionalization of product, which actually allows for new capital to come into the space, which was something that was needed because a lot of people can't put Bitcoin and ETH on their balance sheets. It just doesn't work for them. So they're looking at how, how do we get involved without doing that? Yeah, there's been plenty of opportunities to plunge the knife in, and it's much easier to have this conversation when the market is up only. Christopher Bloomstrand says, one entertainment, read the MicroStrategy recent 10Q and Investor Day presentation. These guys took an unleveraged $500 million revenue, $500 million book value company earning 7% on equity to then borrow 2.1 billion, sell 900 million shares to purchase $3.2 billion worth of Bitcoin. Michael Saylor is taking it in the face repeatedly right now. But how is the view over over where you are? Is 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 he looking like a fool, or is he just kind of chilling and saying, you know, Look, I'm, who knows? I'm this. He's either one of the bravest corporate bets of all time, you know, kind of like um, Massa does, does at SoftBank from time to time, or or it's going to go horribly wrong. My guess is he he knows what he's doing. He's not, you know, Michael's not a stupid guy. He really understands what he's doing, and I think the probability of it paying off remains pretty high. Now, does the market want to test his entry point, which is about 31,000 in Bitcoin? Possibly. Markets like to do that kind of stuff, to kind of stress test people's positioning. I don't think anything really changes at that point. So, but I don't think many other people will follow suit just because it's so hard for accounting. You've seen him fighting with the SEC over how you account for this stuff. It's just not easy for people to do. But yeah, at the same time, it's all transparent. It's all, all there on the blockchain. From our side, we... We love these moments in the market because they stress test lending protocols, and in particular, the kind of hero ones. Cami, I wonder if you give us a, an insight into what was going on at Maker this week. Well, taking it a step back, just looking at liquidations in general, uh, because this is a, a, a pretty kind of uh, good stress test for, for DeFi. Um, and I think the takeaway here is that DeFi just worked, at least DeFi on Ethereum. Um, can say the same for DeFi on, on other layer ones. Uh, but DeFi on Ethereum, you know, uh, DEXs continued swapping tokens, uh, lending and borrowing protocols, uh, you know, li liquidations happened, but they were like pretty orderly. Like there, there weren't like any catastrophic cascading liquidation moments at all. Uh, we have a story on the Defiant out um, yesterday. Uh, very proud that it was the first story using our own proprietary uh, defined data, um, defined terminal data, uh, looking at liquidations. This is a chart you can't get anywhere else, uh, so uh, take a look. 
and uh, we're we're seeing liquidation from Aave, MakerDAO, Compound, uh, Spite, but you know only to the highest level since September. So you know pretty contained in in kind of the context. Um, so I think that's kind of one big takeaway. Like in this big stress test. DeFi is passing. Uh, it's, and we've done this twice yeah. now, right? Because we did it in the summer, last summer. Mm -hmm. And these are sharp, big moves that in other yeah. financial markets would create problems. Mm -hmm. You know, a broker going under somebody somewhere. But this has been, again, super orderly yeah. and has worked really well. Yeah, and it's surprising because I was, I was kind of waiting to see what would happen in a moment like this. And we actually um, mentioned this in, in our interview, Robin. Uh, like I was saying, I wonder what would happen this time around if there's a big test for DeFi because the DeFi ecosystem now is a lot different from where it was last year when when there was this big sell-off. Like it's gotten a lot more complex. Um, there's a lot more uh, Lego pieces that need to fit together. Uh, everything is uh, stacked up higher with just like how interconnected the, the entire space is. So. I would have thought there was a lot more room for something to go wrong. You know, like one of these uh, pieces, who, who said it yesterday? There's some, I'm not taking the credit for this. Somebody else on our team said it. Um, there was a chance for um, money Legos to become money dominoes. Like so, something goes wrong and everything else crashes. So, um, you know, that, that could have been expected uh, given the level of, um, interconnectedness that there is in DeFi, but it just ha hasn't happened yet. So I think that's that's one big takeaway. Um, and then, you know, th there were kind of some pretty uh, intense situations though. Uh, over the weekend, I think it was um, Rune from MakerDAO, the MakerDAO founder spotted this huge position that was about to get liquidated. Um, and this is like, this is another just remarkable thing about DeFi. You see these positions out in the open, like everyone has access to like MakerDAO's books. So you can see these things unfolding as they happen. Um, <clears throat> and it was like a 600 million position that was about to get liquidated. And um, so everyone got on Twitter, like trying to wake this person up who I, I guess like their, their wallet's name was um, Seven Siblings for some reason. And so everyone was like, oh my God, like 600 million worth of ETH is going to get sold in the market. Like this is going to crash the price even further. Um, at the very last minute, the person came in and topped up uh, their collateral. So only, I mean, yeah. I mean, who the hell are these people who have 600 know. million lying around and know. chuck it a few hundred million? You know, who, who the hell it's are insane. these people? I don't know who has 600 million in MakerDAO. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, I think I think there's a there's a broader story here, which is you're right that these liquidations have happened previously, and Maker 
notoriously had Black Thursday, I think it was, where mm-hmm. things got really, really, really bad and die fell off its peg, but it restored itself. The more that happens, the more confidence there is that it will restore itself. And so the participants <laughs> in these ecosystems develop pretty thick skins. And I think, as you rightly say, people who have that much skin in the game are actually pretty resilient to this stuff. It's it's bizarre. What's interesting about all of this is that if you are at risk of liquidation on, say, Binance or BitMEX, they will email you and tell you, by the way, you're at risk of liquidation. That doesn't happen on Maker. We've been looking at a service called EPNS, which will, it's, it's the Ethereum push notification service, and it will allow you to set up notifications for liquidation events like this. It's not there yet, and we're looking at ways to do that with news and everything else, but it ties into something else, which is wallet-to-wallet communication and using your ETH address as a as a, a method of connecting to you and contacting you. And we just had uh, an app called BlockScan released yesterday, which allows you to do encrypted me- wallet-to-wallet messaging, which doesn't sound like that big a deal. But if everything is anonymous and you need to contact someone, knowing that there's this sort of weird back channel that you can connect to, that your message will definitely be delivered, whether the other person reads it or not, who knows, but it will definitely get to the person you are trying to reach. That's sort of unheard of in crypto. So so these weird kind of mycelial network connections between people are starting to be formed that will allow things like these liquidations to be alerted earlier. And that's that's kind of it feels so upside down that we should have all of that. But in a decentralized world, that's actually very difficult to accomplish. So here's a question for you that I've been trying to mull over is these dot ETH addresses. Surely, if you use that as your Twitter handle or whatever it is, and it's public, then somebody sends you an NFT and you like that NFT and you want to stick it in your ledger wallet or whatever. Before you know it, you expose all of your wallets and and everything that you own. Yes. It's kind of like, why would you do that? <laughs> well, I, yeah, go ahead, Cami. I, I have a take on this, but you, you go first. Okay. No, I, I think, you know, the way people do this is you have your public wallet, you know, where you have your, um, your ENS name attached to. And you're okay with people looking at that, that wallet. And it becomes kind of your um, online profile in the same way that, you know, your Facebook profile, you would have showcased kind of your best uh, images and your photo albums and whatever your most witty takes on your Twitter profile. You know, it becomes like your, your, your public facing persona. Um, so that's where you keep your nicest NFTs and so on. Um, and then you have like your other wallets. And I think but, but for you that, can't connect them. You can't move it from your public wallet to your private I mean, wallet without everybody being able to just follow it. There's an easy way to do it. You, you just send money to um, a centralized exchange. And then from the centralized exchange, you send it to a different wallet. So you, you never send funds directly from your doxed ETH account to like your non-doxed one. You, you, you have the, the centralized exchange in between to kind of as a buffer. Yeah, but if you've got an NFT, you can't do that. Or can you still? I think you can. Uh, there is there isn't a tornado cash for NFTs that I know of at the moment, and it's interesting you bring up this point because maybe for NFTs it doesn't work. Yeah. The NFT community has been in a process of kind of self policing, I think, the last couple of weeks and deliberately looking to weed out bad actors. Some things have come to light. There's a Twitter account called NFT Ethics that has unmasked Beanie or Charles Mosco, as he is apparently known, who seems to have been engaged in a a number of things that could be questionable. Let's put it that way. Let's be diplomatic about it. Uh, And all of it was traced via his NFTs. Uh, 
And uh, yeah, it's very, very difficult to hide your tracks. But but on the flip side, it's a reputational thing. You know, if you're a politician and you lean one way, you could use a wallet and the history of transactions that you have as a way of um, guaranteeing legitimacy or at least a commitment to an ecosystem, which I think is fair. What we're starting to see is there are certain projects like the ENS airdrop that will give you rewards based on your participation. And so if you participate, if you're part of the community, then you get rewarded for it. Whether those rewards are commensurate with the amount you put in, I don't know. But at the same time, if you're smart enough and you do participate and it's actually a daily habit to participate, then it's not a thing anyway. So I think in terms of what, what the way I use it, I feel it's important for us at the Defiant to at least try and be open and be acknowledge the fact that it would be very easy to abuse the position that we're in to to trade against the market or or to you know do some insider trading like uh, Nate did at OpenSea. So you know, just putting everything out in the open and just being transparent about it is it's the first thing we should be doing. And so those ETH addresses, they 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 just sit there, and that is what they are. And I've had people. Yeah, but if I asked me, you to show me your bank account, you'd say fuck off. But now, but I mean, it's it's just it's that. It's not. I think I like the idea of the. I actually will. You know, I think it's pretty important. But I but I but I wouldn't because I've got nothing to hide. No, it's not about something to hide. It's just a personal thing, right? Yeah, but I'm, I, I think I, I think don't really care though, to be honest with you. Right, I, I think like you don't care, but like it's legitimate to want to keep that information private, and I think there's ways to do that. There's ways to have like your private wallets uh, that you keep guarded off uh, <clears throat> the the public eye, and then you have like your just like public ETH addresses that are your like online profile. As you know what I say to these first world problems, deal with it. If 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 you've got something that's that valuable, go sell it, have your fun, whatever. You know, <laughs> and, and we're we're talking about NFTs here. There uh, a Canadian journalist called Dan Olson published a two and a quarter hour film crapping all over NFTs last week. And it's ah. got it's got two and a half million views. This thing is immense. And I as someone who's made very long films about NFTs, I kind of respect this in a way. And I think it's important that we have these contrarian views. Noura Rabini has been out in force telling everyone that Bitcoin is a Ponzi and a scam and a barbell and like the Mississippi barbell and the tulip barbell. <laughs> God, I love Rabini. He's the best. <laughs> Pure panto. Um, Cami, did you see this one from Dan No, Austin? I didn't. Did you see it? I, I, I tried to watch like 10 minutes of it and then I got bored because he's well, quite hard to watch. If, if you had watched it, apparently he has like five minutes straight uh, shading on me and my book. Oh, oh awesome. Really nice. Well, that's, I, that's, I, I, I sense a rebuttal I coming. I, I feel like you can't, you know, like really make it unless you have someone who's like put in the time to actually kind of criticize you, Call, calling me a failed journalist and I, all this stuff. So I take that as flattery. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I haven't actually watched it, but a couple of people kind of tagged me and was were like, what? Like, why is he going on about about Cammy's book? <laughs> Anyways. Well, I, I find I find these remote commentators are very, very happy to publish within, you know, the circle of themselves. But if you ask them to come and have a debate with you, they're not interested. Um, Raul, I actually found you on Cointelegraph. Here's the headline. Wait, what? Former Bitcoin bull Raul Paul only owns one Bitcoin. Greg oh, Foss. 
Explain. What happened there? I got so much hatred for that, but it's hilarious. It's just like, you know, as I've been talking about for a long time, I think Bitcoin underperforms some of these others. So, and over time, I just, I just get tired of the Bitcoin, the hardcore Bitcoin community. And they prove it time and time again by, you know, I, I explained that, you know, network effects is actually about encouraging people onto the network and not attacking them when they don't agree with you. And then so when I then say, well, I've actually only got one Bitcoin because I, I feel like I should have a stake in it, but I don't feel like it's where I want to be or what, what's the best use of my money. Oh, my God, everybody freaks out again. And then they dredge up the fact that I bought a bunch of ETH call options that are going to expire worthless. And now I'm exposed as a scam and a fraud because I lost money in an option trade. It's, I mean, it's it's oh, hilarious. Patience, patience. Yeah, <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> but I, I think it's I think it's worth kind of trying to understand where this comes from. Is it fear? Is it abandonment hmm. issues? Is it? I, I mean, because I, I mean, it's very easy to dismiss people when they feel this way, and, and everyone's emotional. But I want to understand why, and then I actually want to kind of undermine that and rewind so, and not fight, but try and so see. So I, I I did this once before. I got thrown into anti climate change Twitter a few years ago. And all of these people, I was arguing with them, say, well, why would you not take Pascal's dilemma and suggest, well, if the downside is catastrophic, then the worst you're going to do is maintain the status quo by trying to stay, save the planet and whatever. But people were really arguing. So I took some people off the side in conversations and I said, I was trying to find out why, why are you so anti this? Because it didn't really make that much rational sense. And the answer was basically, I'm worried you're going to raise gas prices or taxes on gasoline. So what it actually was, was a reflection of poverty and lack of opportunity set. You know, particularly the middle of America got gutted out over the last 30 years. And it was a representation of that. And I think it's somewhat the same in crypto. There's a bunch of people that kind of have some have fun, stay poor crowd who are really, this is their bet, this is their thing, this is their thing that could save them. Um, and they don't have a lot. Because you don't get it from the from the whales in Bitcoin, they're not like that at all. So it's the small holders who think that this is their chance to escape the trap. And they will want to defend the network at all costs and their position because they've self-identified as this. So I think it's a much, I think you're right in the question is why, it's a much more emotive level. There are also some people, you know, we we had a an interview, Ash did an interview with somebody who had invested in um, um, BSV. And oh my God, we got attacked on Twitter. I'm like, really? You can have an open conversation. You might still think Craig Wright is the antichrist. Uh, that's fine. But some guys who are investing in this and they want to put their case across, we should be able to have those conversations. But you can't. So it's, it's, and that was all about forking and the psychological fear of that community splitting you know twice back in 2017 so it, it's right it's, it's all emotional scarring i think yeah there's something interesting with ethereum they're they're what we kind of playfully refer to as eth maxis and those and it generally if you unpack it it boils down to eth is the most decentralized non-bitcoin chain therefore eth is the truth because ETH is decentralized, so it's promoting this idea of decentralization. And so anything that isn't ETH is, is wrong. And that is so painfully off-piste for, for, for me, because I think for, with, with DeFi, what you're trying to do is promote the most 
kind of approachable, inclusive version of finance that we can. And anything on Ethereum inherently is not that. It's just too expensive. It's prohibitive in any, you know, and it, and so you can't in one sentence say ETH is for everybody and then say, well, you can't afford it at the same time. But that is where most people are at. So that's why ETH maximalism falls down. It's not even about decentralization. It's just like entry point access. It's for an elite and the people that it was meant to serve are now priced out. And that's a fact. And also... <coughs> To argue that everything is all about ultimate, ultimate decentralization is kind of missing the point because most people don't care. Now, when you're arguing that, it's from a philosophical standpoint that that's how you think it should be. But people have proven time and time again, they will take the trade-off of time or cost versus decentralization. And that's okay. you know. And that's, and that's why the rest of the space, the layer ones have grown so fast. It's because people will take that trade-off. And Decentralization is not the everything. Everything is relatively decentralized, but not totally decentralized. I have like two two takes here on like on whether everything should be decentralized, but also wanted to add something on on maximalism. Um, so like for me, Bitcoin maximalism kind of like I kind of get it why some people become Bitcoin maximalists because on from what I understand, uh, talking with uh, some of these people, from their worldview, the end goal is to replace, like they actually want to replace the dollar yeah. with Bitcoin. They want Bitcoin to become the digital global currency. And in that world, there's no space for anything else. Like that is the base layer of money uh, that is the global reserve currency. That's where the financial system is being built on. So if ETH starts to gain traction and people start using it as a means of exchange, that comes in direct competition to what their worldview is. So if you have this worldview that Bitcoin is everything and you believe this because um, Bitcoin was, was the first and the best and it's so pure and it's it's so it's it's um, sound money and all, all this kind of view on things you believe like this is the right path forward and like the only path forward so that's why this kind of competitive fear kicks in when they see ethereum or others gaining traction it's like literally a, a battle of survival for bitcoin because like the, the end goal of Bitcoin is becoming everything. And if it doesn't, then it fails. So it is like a survival instinct that kicks in. Like, okay, no, you can't take what is ours. Um, so I, I kind of get that from Bitcoin maximalists, but from Ethereum maxis, I don't get that. Like, I don't get that at all. Like if you're, uh, if you like Ethereum and I like Ethereum, <clears throat> like the way that Ethereum wins is becoming a base layer for decentralized applications. There's like nowhere in, in the vision or narrative or anything that says that this should be the only layer for decentralized applications. Like, I think it can be a great layer for like maybe the most secure applications for maybe those use cases that really require that level of decentralization and, and security where you're okay with spending a couple hundred bucks per transaction because you're transacting millions or billions of dollars on top of that. And it makes sense. All of that I think makes sense, but yeah, like 
like Robin said, uh, or like like you both have said, it's like some people are being priced out of this like most secure uh, layer one. So who cares if they want to go somewhere else and just like play some like play to earn game for for cheaper? Like they should be able to. Like why why that kind of competitive fear on the Ethereum side? Like that I just yeah can't get. because if. It depends what your worldview is. And I think we probably all share the same worldview is we want this internet of value layer to be available to everybody, full stop. So mm -hmm. whatever, however that morphs and however that changes and whatever permutations and combinations of different protocols and different layers is fine because that's what we really want because that is still decentralized at a broader level. And it's not just down to single protocols. So it just, I guess it depends on worldviews. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. It does. The essential definition of Web3, as uh, Gavin Wood expressed it, was in sort of direct response to Snowden. And it was, we cannot fundamentally trust big data, big organizations and governments to look after our data properly. So Web3 is an attempt to carve out a system or an idea or an identity for a world in which we don't have to. It's not that we can or we can't, it's that we don't have to. And somehow all of that gets lost in all the politicizing and everything else. And and I think Ethereum is unfortunately sort of caught in the best of both worlds. It's both fantastic and also deeply flawed at the same time. And its flaws are what has created this insecurity about its you know future as a relevant chain in everything. And of course, Ethereum is never going to go away. What was interesting this week was the great renaming of ETH2. ETH2 is no more. Amen. Uh, Cami, the sequel to the Infinite Machine, you're going to have to rename it because these two gone away. Mm -hmm. What Can is you it? Explain now? this one. Yeah. I missed this uh, story. I mean, it, it's something that's been happening for, for a while. I mean, at least since for a while in crypto terms, since kind of maybe November last, last year. Uh, yeah, but they've, uh, they've, as in kind of the Ethereum Foundation, have been wanting to um, change the narrative a little bit from ETH1 and ETH2 to Ethereum consensus layer and Ethereum application layer or e execution layer. So I think the, the idea is that um, the reason behind this is because the end a chain where there's proof of stake consensus uh, a protocol and the application layer on top that is ethereum um and in the eth1 eth2 narrative that would have been called eth2 so i think you know in the same way that uh, when ethereum forked the new chain was also called ethereum the old chain was called ethereum classic like ethereum just wants the latest iteration of the protocol to be Ethereum. So I think that's kind of what, what, what this is about. So it's like right now, um, ETH 
th there's kind of the the proof of stake consensus layer um, that is, you know, the proof of stake chain that's already working. And then um, there is the execution layer, like the application layer that's happening um, on like the current Ethereum chain that we we're all kind of using uh, right now, um, which at the moment sits on top of our proof of work consensus layer. But in the coming months, there's supposed to be a merge between the current execution layer and the proof of stake uh, consensus layer, and that will become Ethereum instead so of I, ETH2. So I can I can pick this one up a little bit because the the architecture of ETH 2.0 as it was is quite similar to what we had at Harmony, which is it's sharded. And shards are essentially like little mini standalone blockchains that sit within a, a larger blockchain ecosystem. But there's one main chain called a beacon chain, and this is where everything gets filed into, and that's where all the messages are finally committed. So ETH1, as we know it now, is that beacon chain, and it's actually very straightforward for them to implement that beacon chain. The shards that sit on top of it or, or sit alongside it are actually quite difficult. And one of the things that you understand when you start working on shards is that Individually, they're quite robust, but communication between shards is very, very complicated. And particularly with things like DeFi, the, the danger with shards is that what you will find is that all the, um, the money Legos that we know now will cluster on the same shard. So you will lose all the benefits of being sharded, which is you have data distributed all over the place, which makes it a lot faster because the intercommunication is so difficult between shards. And that this idea of distributed networking and distributed consensus is, it sounds easy. It's really not. It's really, really not. So you will find that everyone wants to be on the beacon chain. They want to be there because that's where all the action is. But actually, the fastest transactions will be on shard one, two, three. And I think with, with Ethereum, they, you know, they're talking about 50, 60 shards. The communication overhead on that is going to be utterly insane. And I don't think anybody quite realizes quite how complicated sharding actually is. Of course, it's amazing, but very, very difficult. So this ETH1 chain is going to be the beacon chain, and it's going to kind of move up and be this thing. And that's why they don't want ETH2.0 anymore, because they need to merge these things together. They need to move to proof of stake. But calling ETH2.0 is a misnomer because it's not ETH2.0. It's, it's, yeah. it's just Ethereum. It's just Ethereum. It's just an yeah. upgraded Ethereum. Yeah. Yes. It's not like it's insignificant. <clears throat> it's just it, it sets expectations in the wrong place. And I've seen various kind of comments about this. Those who want it to be called ETH 2.0 want ETH PAMP. And those who actually understand what's going on understand that that's it's nothing to do with that. It's not even a rebrand. It's just it's just realism. This is just like this is a really tough engineering challenge and it will represent things and it will just bring up things that we've never even seen before at scale and it'll break all the time and everyone will get really angry and I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> As per usual, I had, a, I had a fantastic chat with Andre Cronier from uh, from Yearn Finance, who's big kind of engineer on the Phantom Network, just talking about how much crap Phantom has had over the years. And Phantom is having an amazing time right now. They're really proving their worth as a layer one, you know, vaulting above Avalanche that everyone thought was this amazing engineering marvel. It just goes to show that if there's a great developer and he has the tenacity to stick with a chain for a prolonged period of time, then that chain can thrive. And uh, fascinating story, that one. I love Andre. He's just fresh and honest and real. It's rare, very, very rare. Yeah, can't wait uh, to check it out. 
I think we'll have it up on, on the channel soon. So yeah, everyone should go watch this Andre interview. Uh, yeah, looking forward to that. One. Yeah. So it's probably a good moment to wrap it up. I don't know if Raul, you've got anything else that you want to air publicly. <laughs> Nothing that I can admit to. Uh, I've got a question for you. Were you present at Boris Johnson's birthday party? Because rumor has it, <laughs> I'm not you had a, a slice, you had a slice of cake, but you didn't I'm, inhale. I'm not at liberty to confirm or deny anything. <laughs> British politics is so lame. <laughs> Cammy, any final words on uh, any, any further news on Infinite Machine, the movie, the NFT project? The project is uh, is coming along. We we hope to. I mean, I really hope to have some big news to share uh, soon. Uh, but TBD on that. Uh, we still have to announce our third and final sale. Uh, but go check uh, these uh, NFTs out on OpenSea. Um, it's the Infinite Machine Movie Collection. Um, yeah, they're they're just like beautiful uh, NFTs. And uh, talk about Ethereum. They really kind of celebrate. Uh, Ethereum, like just lots of colorful, diverse, uh, like this explosion of Ethereum logos. And can Canadian YouTuber Dan Olson is, is apparently not a fan. So if you need a, <laughs> a greater reason to buy than go. <laughs> NFTs have actually been on a massive boom in January. I seem to remember 2018 February, ICOs just went berserk. So I'm curious to see whether this NFT boom is simply money needs to go somewhere. It's now buying NFTs. But I am seeing some really interesting things happening. Some rumors around Clonex and Justin Bieber and Nike apes have reportedly been valued at something absurd like 5 billion as they prepare to launch their token. There's just a bunch of stuff happening in NFTs that I'm like, are they uncorrelated? I don't even know anymore, but I'm still guts deep in all of this stuff and having the best time. Yeah, that, tell ape, you what, that ape social token, I'm really interested in seeing how that works because you know, that's going to be a big unlock for another whole phase. I'm yeah. telling you, like pop culture insertion, pop culture relevance, it is literally the lubricant that will allow the great unwash to come in their numbers. Yeah, culture is an investment now. And that's that's something I've been talking about. And I'll tell you what, you cannot make a better investment in culture than watching this trio of unholy people <laughs> come together again next week. We won't have you, Raoul. I know. We get you, you know, like once I'm a month. There. I'm not it's traveling like, or doing anything, so... Fantastic. Well, so thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thanks, Camille, as always. Thanks, Raoul. And we will see you next week for another edition of this, whatever this was. This was Real Vision versus The Defiant. See you next time. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Crypto Podcast. For more great crypto content like this, head over to realvision.com slash crypto and get unfiltered access to the most brilliant minds in finance and crypto.